Acts 8, beginning with verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 13. As always, let's read together, and let us read aloud. Verse 9, But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you and bless you for this day. We ask, Father, that you would bless and anoint us with your Holy Spirit. May we, Father, come to a greater understanding of your word, and especially, Lord, this passage of Scripture today. We ask you that you would help us to rightly divide it, so that everything that is said and done to this, uh, with this particular passage and this particular study, Lord God, would be to your honor and glory that we will speak your truth and know your truth and grow in your truth and your love, your grace, and in all the things pertaining to your kingdom. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, not only in this place, but everywhere we go to that which is true and to that which is false, that we may always discern, Lord, your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Many, if not most of us, here have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. Now, I don't mention this because I want to go into any great detail about it. But I think it's a reality and a truth that most of us have seen that movie a few times. Many of us growing up would see it uh, once or twice a year, as they would show it on TV. Uh, and so I'm not here to promote it as, as much, as a, or to find out how many people actually saw the, uh, the premiere in 1939. I don't think uh, any of us here would have worried too much about seeing it then. But uh, uh, I've always liked a, a line from that movie, though, that is said, when, when that person speaking as the wizard is exposed by Toto the dog, who pulls back the screen, you know, the, the dog does, pulls back the screen where this person was manipulating the picture and the sound, and he realizes that he's being seen, and, and he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, you know, that line seems to always remind me of this person in our text named Simon the Sorcerer. Just as the wizard has, had, uh, I should say, the Wizard of Oz had mesmerized and astonished the people of Oz with, with his sorceries, with his sleight of hand, with all of his manipulation, Simon, as our text describes, had from the least to the greatest heeding him and calling him the great power of God, much like they all said of that great and mighty the gospel of Jesus Christ 
had now come to Samaria through the table server Philip, who preached the word of God and gave evidence of God's power by performing miracles. We saw in verse 8 that because of this great, uh, because of this happening, because of what was taking place and because of what uh, Philip was doing, that joy had come, great joy, <clears throat> was in that particular city in Samaria. But the first word in verse 9 seems to spoil the whole picture. It's the word but. Everything was going so well, but. <laughs> you oftentimes heard that, haven't you? You know, where people talk about, you know, some very uh, uplifting things. Well, you know, this is happening, that's happening, it's all good, but there's a little problem or there's a little dilemma. And that's how that word is to be seen here in verse 9. All throughout the city there in Samaria and that region, love and joy and peace and repentance and revival and rebirth was taking place everywhere except in the heart of one individual. For all intents and purposes, Simon with his sorceries and his deceptions was a puppet of Satan who certainly reigned supreme in the soul of this magician. And seeing what was taking place by the power of Almighty God through the man Philip, Simon had met his match. He had deceptive demonic power as well. We know that from the word sorceries. He had deceptive demonic power, but, but it was weak and inferior in comparison to what Philip was, was, was uh, uh, expressing. You know, there is a fundamental principle in God's Word that wherever God distributes, wherever He sows and wherever He plants His people, who we call true believers in Jesus Christ, wherever God sows His people, the enemy will sooner or later sow his own counterfeits. It happened then. It happens now. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, where, he says, where it says there, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop... Then the tares also appeared. So the servant of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed, or did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the disciples wanted to get a little bit of an understanding of this particular parable, and so they asked, asked Jesus about that, and, and he answered them in verse 37. And he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age, of this age. So consider then that Jesus was quite familiar, quite aware of the work of the enemy in sowing counterfeits. It happened during John the Baptist's ministry. It happened with Jesus as well. And we would think outside of maybe the religious circle that Jesus was familiar with or around. But, but listen to this in Matthew 23, verse 15. If you're familiar with Matthew 23, you realize that Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. And notice what he says to them in verse 15 of Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as, uh, as yourselves. Now what is he saying about the scribes and Pharisees' religion? But that there's something false about it. There's something demonic in it, in the very fact that they're not leading anyone to God. And that's a very strong statement. We know what Jesus said to a bunch of people, scribes and Pharisees present, when he said in John 8:44, You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Even to that religious position, as long as the son was rejected, then they did not stand on truth. And of course, it would be true of Paul's ministry as well. The enemy comes as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But when that approach fails, he comes as a serpent to deceive. Isn't that interesting? He comes to devour, but if he can't devour, he then deceives. It's been his M.O. as long as he's been around. Satan's tool here in our text is this person named Simon. It is interesting that Satan, at one time, because it was his desire to destroy the church, it's just interesting that Satan tried money to stop the church in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And then Satan tried murder to stop the church in the case of Stephen. But with Simon, he tried mimicry. He went from money to murder. And if you can't destroy them, deceive them with mimicry. Simon was a mimic. For the most part, he was an illusionist. For the most part, he was one who practiced sleight of hand. But that along with what else? Sorceries. A deadly, wicked combination. And take a look, if you will, at verse 9 for a moment to consider Simon's motives. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. 
He was promoting himself, of course. He was promoting everything that he did as a sorcerer, as a magician. And Simon, I'm sure, enjoyed the reputation that he had established for himself. He was spoken of by the people in all circles of society. They were impressed with his magical and his mysterious powers. He was on his magical mystery tour. Well, I'm not talking about the Beatles there. I just want to see if any of you oldie, oldie guys were awake. All in all, Simon was inflated with pride. Did you notice he claimed that he was someone great? Were he alive today, he would be even more inflated knowing that he had been given a number of names down through history. He's been called Simon the Magician, Simon the Sorcerer, Simon Magus, uh, you know, bringing him together with the, the, the magic of, the, of, of, of that time, the, the Magi, if you remember, also were considered to be of that particular understanding. Simon Magus, Simon of Gitta, Gitta being the city that they believed that Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria, that he was from that city. Simon had a lot of names, just to name a few we've given him. But he, he was not just an illusionist, but he was also a conduit of demonic activity, a conduit for demonic activity. He was a puppet, as I said before, of Satan, which is why he was so popular. He did things that amazed the crowds, that opened their eyes, and they said, Oh, wonder of wonders, look at what this man can do with dark powers. Isn't that what people are, are, are kind of always looking for? They're always in wonder and amazement of, of illusionists. And they try, of course, the illusionists to make it seem like, Whoa, listen, it's power. Is that what it is? Putting those two things together. You can deceive a lot of people. You can put the wool over a lot of people's eyes that way. But we learn that he was forsaken by the people. He was forsaken for one great reason. And that one great reason was that Philip, that table server from, uh, you know, that came from Jerusalem into Samaria, that Philip preached and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ. And immediately the people realized there was hope, there was joy, and a reason for living. And no longer just living in some kind of darkness or some kind of, of you know, some kind of cloudiness because, you know, you try to figure people out, but then they, they do things so that they appear to be great. But now they realized all the blinders were taken off and they could see light. And you see, they were no longer bound to the mysteries of darkness because light had revealed the truth of real power. Real power was taking place. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Things were happening. Things were being affected in the lives of the people of Samaria. Because the content of Philip's message was the person and work of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. And Jesus didn't try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. It was very clear what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to die for sinners. And you see, 
Now the people publicly identified themselves with Jesus and with the church. Because Philip came preaching with power and with might the gospel. And I'm sure that Philip, in preaching Jesus Christ and the kingdom, preached what Jesus proclaimed to Nicodemus. And this is a very significant thing that we take note of today. That we have to know that when he preached Jesus, he preached this. He preached what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Jesus' answer said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot come preaching the good news of Jesus and the kingdom without preaching the necessity of being born again. And I'm sure that he taught what Jesus taught. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is so significant as we look at the decision that Simon makes here. The sorcerer had lost his disciples, and we have to wonder, was his mind cunningly at work thinking here now, thinking through what's going on? If you can't beat them, then join them. If you can't beat this guy who's doing all of these things and these wondrous things, then you've got to join him. Now follow with me here. Don't give up on me yet. Was he really paying attention? Was he paying attention to what Philip was saying? What was he paying attention to that day? Was he paying attention to the words or was he paying attention to the works? This is a crucial, crucial question. And this person named Simon. Because we're told in verse 13 that Simon himself also believed. Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he was baptized also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed. But please catch what's going on here. He was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. See, do not be so quick to take two words in that particular verse and assume. He believed. He was baptized. My question to you is, was he saved? Was he saved? What does it mean that Simon himself also believed? This is a crucial question, folks, for our day and time as well. I've heard a lot of people say they believe in Jesus, but their lives give no testimony whatsoever of a changed heart. I've entitled this message, Changes of Heart. I believe that many people in Samaria that day that their hearts were changed from what they once were to what they are, or what they were at that present time with Philip, changed into true faith in Jesus Christ. But our focus is on this person named Simon. And maybe the better question to ask is not so much, was he saved, but what was the basis of his faith if he truly believed? What was the basis of his faith if he truly believed? When you look at the account carefully here, you realize that his faith was not in the Word of God, 
but in the miracles and the signs and in the wonders that he saw Philip performing. Now remember, what was he? He was a a sorcerer. He was a magician. He was an illusionist who also dabbled in the sorceries and the demonic activity of of, of the dark side, as it were, of, 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 of things. And now he sees things happening and people are beginning to believe and turn their faith toward Jesus Christ, turn their hearts toward Jesus. But he's looking at what's taking place. He's looking at what's happening. We don't see any indication here that he believed the word of God. Because you see, in just reading the word believe, some people would immediately interpret the word to mean saved. But there are instances in scripture where people are described as believing who are not saved. Take, for example, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. There it says now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name, it says. Do you see that? Many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But notice that it says that they believed because they saw the signs. Later on, we're going to find out that people were believing in Jesus because of this great and wonderful miracle of feeding 5,000 men and their families with just a little boy's lunch. But just another chapter later, when Jesus really kind of lays down some very heavy-duty theology in their presence and talks about the people needing to eat of His flesh and drink of His blood. But they began to walk away. And the only ones that were left were the disciples, the apostles. And He asked them, are you going to leave also? And Peter said, where can we go? You are the one who has the truth, the word of eternal life. You are the one who has life. These people believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But Jesus, notice, did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. You see, it's one thing to say you believe, but do you truly know? And does He know you? It had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He, was, for he knew what was in man, see? Isn't that interesting? And then consider what is written in the, in the letter of James to the church, James chapter 2, verse 19, where James writes, You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, I'm sure that we would all agree that demons are not saved. Well, okay. <laughs> I think, you know, I think we'd all agree that demons are not saved. Yet it is clear that they believe. James says that. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. They have a fear, not, not so much a fear like uh, we're to have of reverence toward God. Their fear is one of terror. They believe and they tremble. You know, that's even, that even astonishes me that the demons will tremble at God, but some people who call themselves Christians will not tremble at God. Isn't it written to us that we are to fear the Lord? To reverence Him, to respect Him? To honor Him with awe as one who is great and mighty above all things. But some Christians act as if He's just our, our buddy. They call Him the man upstairs. I can't stand that phrase, you know. 
He is Almighty God. We're to treat Him. And if the demons believe and tremble, where's the trembling in our own lives? Before a holy God. Now understand this, because we are His children, we, we, we fear in a, in a totally different understanding. He is to be respected. He is to be reverenced. But it says a lot about people who say they believe. And this is what James is getting at. You believe there's one God? Well, you do well. <laughs> That's good. But you only come up to the level of ascent, mental ascent here, see? Mental ascent with the demons because they believe also, but they tremble. What about you? Is there another level of belief? You know, it has oftentimes been said that a person can miss heaven by 18 inches. A person can miss heaven by 18 inches. The, different, the distance between here and here. Well, wherever it is. I don't have an 18-inch ruler, so I'd have to cut one to make sure it's true, you know. Maybe it's 17 inches. Or, but you understand the, the point. That many people can miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between the mind and the heart. Why? Because they can believe intellectually. Some people actually do. They can believe intellectually, academically. They, they, can, they can affirm theology mentally. But if there is not faith in the heart, they are no better than the demons in hell. And that's what James said. You believe there's, a, there's one God. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So you're no better than the demons in hell if you believe up here, but you don't believe in your heart. Simon believed. Simon was baptized. Possibly, possibly, even deceiving Philip. Because he was baptized. But more importantly, Simon deceived himself. Simon deceived himself simply because of this. He coveted the miracles instead of the Master. He coveted the signs, but not the Savior. He coveted the miracles instead of the Master. He coveted the signs, but not the Savior. Was this just another celebrity getting saved to add a testimony to his resume? Now, I, I know that there have been some celebrities, some, you know, whatever, whether it's in, in the entertainment field or sports field or whatever, people who are in the limelight and something, that, that they, they actually do come to Christ. And, 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 and some become good witnesses of Jesus. They have to get away from, uh, from, from what's been binding them to the world. And, 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 and they, they just start anew. But too many others, for too long, have sought just to have that kind of a, 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 a testimony. But we oftentimes wonder when they continue on in, in their lifestyles and stuff, whether they truly have come to know Christ. Simon was a celebrity. Did you, did you read back there in verses 10 and 11? All the people in Samaria gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. He was a superstar. He was a superstar, but he was deceived. 
and he deceived. Paul says in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 13, he says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. Evil men and impostors grow worse and worse. They not only deceive, but they're being deceived. Thinking that they're right on. That they're, you know, they're, they're just finding a new level of truth. Simon just thinks he's finding a new level of truth here so that he can obtain this power, you see. James, going back to James again, but in James 1, verses 21 and 22, he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, we're, we're seeing, we're, this is missing from the story of Simon here. This very thing, an implanted word to save his soul, being a doer of the word. Was that what he was? No. We don't see evidence of that here. Because while Simon was hanging around trying to discover the secret of Philip's power, that is what we can see in this particular passage. While he's doing this, something else is happening. To bring all of this to light, something else is happening. Peter and John were making their way to Samaria in response to the news. News had gotten back from Samaria to, to Jerusalem. There's a revival going on in Samaria. Philip has been preaching the gospel. People are coming to Jesus. People are, 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 people's lives are being changed. Their hearts are being changed. And he's going about touching people's hearts and lives, but, but they're also getting saved and they're getting delivered from things. You need to come and see. Now remember we said last time that the, the, the apostles did not leave Jerusalem. But notice verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, and again, the emphasis on the Word of God, do you see that? It doesn't say that, that Samaria had received the miracles of God or the signs and wonders. It says they received the Word of God. That's significant here. They sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we see confirmation then of their salvation, confirmation of their conversion, confirmation of the change of heart in their lives. Because as, they, as the apostles come to them, they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And they do. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to note here. First of all, Peter and John were sent to Samaria. I really think this is important for you to understand. Peter and John were sent to Samaria. This was a decision of all the apostles making it clear that Peter had no authority over them like some papal authority. He had no papal authority over them as a supreme leader. They prayed together, they sought the Lord together, and when the decision came, Peter and John, who had been so instrumental uh, in the hands of God as instruments to bring, uh, to bring about the pour, outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the early church at Pentecost, and, and every other uh, subsequent time uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit came upon those who had come there in the, the temple wanting to know what was going on, and, and, and people were getting saved on a daily basis, they decided to send Peter and John. So this was not some, some, you know, decision from on top. They were all praying together. That's important. 
The second thing to note is that while the Samaritans were born again and baptized, they had not yet received the empowerment of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus, but as, as, as we had seen uh, what was happening in the, uh, in the church at Pentecost there, but, uh, but they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the main reason here is that it was, it was necessary. It was necessary for Peter and John to come from Jerusalem to Samaria and to lay hands on the converts to impart to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the reason is this. It was to unite the Samaritan believers with your original Jewish church and the believers that were in Jerusalem. I'm convinced that the Lord didn't want two churches that would continue the division and the conflict that had been around for centuries between Jews and Gentiles. God did not want that. God did not want that division. There was one church now. And so it was significant that Peter and John, who had been with Jesus, and by the way, I think it's even more significant that John himself went, because there was a time when John didn't like the Samaritans very much, that he, wanted, he and his brother James wanted Jesus to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. So could you imagine when they were being sent that John was saying, well, can you send somebody else? Uh, they might not like me over there. Philip's probably been telling them the story about me. No, they just got up and went <laughs> because they trusted the Lord. And can you imagine the love that was to be shared amongst them because now they were a part of the body of Christ. They were a part of the body of Jesus together, Jew and Gentile, which has been God's desire from the very beginning. You see, Philip was, was not starting a separate movement. Philip was not trying to start a distinct denomination of believers from those in Jerusalem. They were all to be one body in Jesus Christ. Paul makes this very clear in his letter to the Ephesian church, who was mostly made up of mostly uh, 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 Gentiles. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-14, through 14, Paul says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, and that's a good use of the word but there, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation. That's what was happening in Samaria. The wall was being broken down. The Jews had considered the Samaritans wicked and unclean, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the wall came down, and the two became one. Well, let's get back and finish here with Simon. Go back to verse 17 for just a moment. It says, and I, I, it's important to see why we start here. They, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What is happening? Peter and John, two apostles of Jesus, come into Samaria. And now they are taking all those who, have been, all those who are believers and have been baptized. And they lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And something significant may have been happening at that time. 
One of the most significant things that is not mentioned yet, at the same time you would almost have to link together with, with what has happened before, is, is, is that of the speaking uh, in other tongues. As an evidence of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But notice verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. Now this is, an, this is a very significant verse because it is putting Simon in a position of, of, of observing and, and kind of like one who is, who is on the outside looking in at what is taking place. Not so much as one being in and receiving, but one who is looking into this thing. Spectator, as it were. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Another indication of a problem here. He offered them money saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Simon didn't just want the power. He wanted the, the ability to impart the power to others. And he was ready to pay for it. Quite willing to pay for this power. You know, the Bible says we're not to judge one another, but we are to judge fruit. Please make that very clear in your understanding of what it means to judge and not judge. The Bible tells us we need to judge fruit. We need to discern between truth and the false. And what do we see here? Somebody offers money for power. Is he a changed heart? It is from this very passage that we read here that we get an interesting word to add to our vocabulary. You'll find it in every Dictionary. It's the word simony. <clears throat> simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y. Simony. The definition of simony is this. The buying and selling of church offices or privileges. The buying and selling of church offices or privileges is called simony. Just add a Y to the end of Simon. And then ask the question, why? <laughs> why? Why did he do that? Throughout the book of Acts, we will find the gospel in conflict. In conflict with money. In conflict with big business. In conflict with anything that would take people's attention away from the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will later see Paul put a fortune teller out of business in the book of Acts. Then we will see that he gives problems to silversmiths who, may, who are making idols of Diana for profit in Ephesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is preached through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes into contact with that love of money. Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Brings us to another important principle. 
And that principle is this, it is much more important to preach the gospel and the word of God than to win the support of the wealthy and influential people of the world. It is more important to preach the gospel and the word of God than to win the support of the wealthy and the influential people of the world. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verses 22 through 25 gives us some words that each and every one of us in this room have to heed. We need to listen to carefully. Paul says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. What is eye service? It is that you serve to be seen. You do things to be seen of men. So he says, do not uh, uh, do things to be seen of men, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. It is very clear the attitude of the believer in Jesus Christ who knows himself or herself to be a servant of Jesus Christ that we don't do what we do to be seen of men. We don't do it to have the the applause of men. We do it to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ that He receives the glory, that He receives the honor, that He receives the praise. What is Simon doing? He wants power. What has he been used to? Receiving the praise. He started it. He told everybody he was great. And then he started receiving greatness from the people. Why? Because he did things. Sorceries. Illusion. Magic. But you see, now he was out of a job. Because the people looked to Jesus. And they saw the true power of God heal people, change people's lives, deliver them from demons, deliver them from from sicknesses and, and, and diseases, which he could never do. But then when he sees the power come upon the, uh, the people through the, through the apostles, the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I want that. I want it for me. You see in verses 18 and 19 of our text, and and in particular, verse 19, Simon put his covetousness into words. He wanted to buy and to sell the Holy Spirit of God as if he were a, a commodity on the market. He's not a thing. He is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to sell Him and trade Him and buy Him. To Simon, you see, the power of the Holy Spirit was just a superior sorcery from which he could profit and gain. And as with Ananias and Sapphira, this was a sin against the Spirit of God. It was a sin against the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, just as a point of reminder, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see, now we begin to see a revealing of the heart of this person named Simon. 
Because the words that are then given to Simon by Peter serve to show that the sorcerer was not a converted, changed man. Look at verse 20 now. But Peter said to Simon, Your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. That's a strong statement. All of these statements that Peter gives to Simon are strong. They are harsh. Your money perish with you. You thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Well, you have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart. Listen, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Peter traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Samaria. Not so much just to lay hands on the Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. He came with that discernment of the Holy Spirit to look right into the heart of Simon and said, Your heart is not right with God and in the sight of God. But he does tell him in verse 22, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Where was repentance before if he truly believed? Where was repentance before if he believed and then was baptized? Where was it? You see, we didn't see it. But now Peter says, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter is telling him, You need to pray, buddy. You need to get your heart right with God, buddy, right now. Because as it is, you may be facing some eternal problems. Notice verse 23, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Poisoned by bitterness and bound. What does it mean? What was he bitter about? Well, wouldn't you be bitter if all of a sudden you lost all of your followers? If you lost all of the people that had been amazed by the great things that you had done? You'd be pretty bitter. But it also reveals that he was poisoned because he was still bound to iniquity. He was still bound. And so Simon answered and he said, listen to what Simon says. He says, pray to the Lord for me. Pray for me. There are times when some people say, you know, hey, please pray for me. I'll tell them, you pray too. As a matter of fact, you pray. Maybe you start praying, things will happen. There are people, I, I, not here in the church, but I've had people outside, oh, please pray for me. Well, I will, but you better pray too. And pray for mercy. You need God's mercy. But he says, pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. I don't want to cover over verse 24. I'm coming back to it. But I just want to conclude this by saying that after all of this was done, the apostles went back to Jerusalem. And as they're going back, they're still preaching the gospel. So, you know, the gospel is never not preached by these people as they went out. But... But, but let's focus on verse 24 again. Pray, he says to the Lord, for me, that none of these things which you've spoken may come. So the words Peter used were strong indicators that Simon was not saved. The apostles' rebuke was a harsh one. But there was still hope extended for repentance. But should he not change, Peter was saying in effect to him, you and your money can just go to destruction. <laughs> You and your money can go to destruction. 
Simon's heart was not right. And therefore, not changed. There was no change of heart. No change of heart. What he asked for revealed fear. But not the fear of the Lord. It revealed that fear of terror. What, was, what is going to happen to me if I'm not changed here? Oh, please pray for me. The question to ask is, was it a godly fear that would have led to repentance? You see, he said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. His response was not encouraging at all. He was more concerned about avoiding judgment than getting right with God. Folks, that's a problem today. Even today in the church. The people are afraid of of judgment more than they are about getting right with God. I tell you, we need to get right with God. Let's start there. Let's start with Him who loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's start with Jesus. Let's start with what Jesus has already done for us. Let's start there. Let's start by getting our hearts with God right before Him. Had he been genuinely convicted, had Simon been genuinely convicted of his sin, he wouldn't have asked Peter for prayer. He would have been praying for himself and that praying for mercy. Because there really isn't any evidence here whatsoever that Simon ever truly repented and sought forgiveness. There was no true fear of the Lord. In other words, what is the true fear of the Lord? Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding of all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. That's the fear of the Lord. In, in Proverbs 1 verse 7 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Did Simon ever respond to the Word of God? No, he was only looking at the works. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Now, we're, we're given every indication that there were three things of that list of four here in Proverbs 8 13 that were attached to Simon, but he probably also had a perverse mouth too. It just doesn't seem like he said anything perverse at the, at the time. But the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil wind, the perverse mouth I hate. Listen, here's the question to ask before we leave today. How close can a person come to salvation and still not be converted? 18 inches? Simon appeared to have more of a change of mind and method than a true change of heart. He was ready to change his mind about things. So, well, if you can't beat them, join them. But now if I join them, I want the kind of power they have. But it wasn't to serve the Lord, it was to serve Himself. Early church tradition, and this is important for us to understand if you do a little study about this, Simon. Early church tradition says that Simon went off the deep end. Becoming a dangerous and a divisive false teacher among the early Christians, eventually making his way to Rome, and there going insane and burying himself alive, trying to emulate the resurrection of Jesus, promising to rise on the third day. So Simon Magus probably could have changed his name to Simon Maggots, because I don't think he 
would have ever come out of that particular burial alive. Now, there are a lot of myths about Simon, too. All of that we don't need to go into. But the point is that there are a lot of people that think that possibly he might have gotten saved just because it says he believed. But then again, even the demons believe. But they tremble. There are many today who give a verbal profession of Jesus Christ and even get baptized with others, but is their salvation real? Is it real? You know, the Scriptures tell us that we need to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. That is a Scripture given to the church, that everybody in the body of Christ needs to examine themselves all the time to see that we're in the faith. Check ourselves out to see that we're walking in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Are you examining yourself by the Word of God? See, there's a difference between making a profession and making a confession. A lot of people can profess, but confession involves the mouth and the heart. And folks, in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, that's the first step. Are you born again of the Spirit of God? In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says, He came to His own. Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. But notice this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is being born again of the Spirit of God. Are you born again? Has your life been so changed that you are, you know, you are now a, a new creature in Christ? The old has passed away. Before, behold, all things have become new. Are there new things in your life now that you don't do any long, that you do now that you, you know, you didn't do before, and you're not doing the things before because you're doing these new things now because you love Jesus and you want to honor Him by your life. Being born again by the Spirit of God is important. And then lastly, Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, notice, believe in your heart, that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a, that, that is a confident statement there. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And as I said before, not too long ago, you cannot separate salvation from righteousness in the Scriptures. These things we do not see evident in the life of Simon, the sorcerer. Are you examining yourself to see that you're in the faith? You know, we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out, well, was he saved or not? Well, I think the evidence speaks for itself. But the important thing isn't so much Simon. The important thing is you and me. Examine yourself. And see that you're in the faith. Be confident to be able to say, I am a born again child of God. Not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to His mercy. He has saved me. And my life has changed. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Let's pray.